0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
2: This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned Books and Books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What well, you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary with writers readers publishers old friends new friends and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books reading or writing these will be informal over the backyard fence kind of conversations the kind i and booksellers everywhere have each and every day Eight years ago, the Night Circus burst upon our literary scene. Enchantingly perfect. Reading this novel is like having a marvelous dream, said Newsday. And today we celebrate the publication of The Starless Sea, a timeless love story set in a secret underground world, a place of pirates, painters, lovers, liars, and ships that sail upon a starless sea. The author is Erin Morgenstern, and Kirkus, in a very wonderful review, said, An ambitious and bewitching gem of a book with mystery and passion inscribed on every page. Publishers Weekly says, This love letter to bibliophiles is dreamlike and uncanny, grounded in deeply felt emotion, and absolutely thrilling. And Aaron, the author of this marvelous book, is my guest today. Welcome to the literary life, and welcome to Miami. I know that you're toward the end of your travels. You're toward the end of the tour uh, for The Starless Sea, which is the new book that came out, I think, in October, I believe. November. November. Um, and I know it must all seem like a blur <laughs> to you, city after city after city. Um, and I know that you also went abroad. Mm-hmm. So I'm really interested uh, I've what are you left with? Are there any real notable experiences that you've had that that stick Ooh, out
1: during everything. in this blur? The whole thing has been so lovely. I think the best part has been um getting to talk to people who've now visited a place that lived in my head and my head alone for a very long time, um and having that um, experience of talking to people who now have visited. This, this imaginary place and, and seeing the enthusiasm for it. And then just how much people are doing with it. Um, I did an event in um, Santa Cruz in California and they did a literary masquerade. Oh, beautiful. And we had a costume contest and a beautiful theater and that was fun. Um, I went to the UK and, and the London event they had for Waterstones. They built a door. They built... A whole freestanding wooden door with a bee and a key and a sword on it that had lived in in one of the Waterstones locations for the first few weeks after the book was out, and then they moved it for my London event. So th- it's been a lot. and it's it's strange that it's it's getting to watch something um, go from just living in my head and in my office, in my house and being very lonely and alone just by myself in it and then seeing it expand and be embraced by so many people.
2: Can you tell a difference between the US audiences and the audiences abroad? Are they reacting to it in similar ways think, or are they reacting to different parts of it differently?
1: I think it's been similar as far as I can tell. Um I've had I did have a lot of the UK the feedback. I don't try to read reviews but occasionally I Occasionally, I do um, end up seeing like headlines and things coming through on Twitter, but they um, there were a lot of comments about the story feeling like it's from the U.S. or the story feeling more American, which I think is interesting. But the the enthusiasm level seemed to be the same; like people are still reacting well to it.
2: Well, it's taken. It's taken us by storm here mm-hmm. at Books and Books. And I know it's taking stores around the country. It's on the Indie bestseller list, mm-hmm. the New York Times bestseller list. It's everywhere you turn. So that's a really great sign. And, you know, what's really interesting to me as a bookseller is that there are others who've, who haven't, who've had their second book come out 10 years after the first. Mm-hmm. And often you kind of forget about that first book and you sort of go, wow. I forgot about that (laughs) But what's so interesting to me is that the Night Circus caused such a sensation. Mm -hmm. And the Night Circus lived on. The idea of the Night Circus living on and finding readership Mm -hmm. after readership after readership, I think people felt like they still knew Aaron Morgenstern Mm -hmm. and were so excited when The Starless Sea came out. Uh, So tell us how the story of Zachary found its way to you.
1: Oh, um, I always start with place. Um, The circus was the same way I had this black and white striped circus in my head before I knew what the story behind it was. And with this, I had this idea of this sort of subterranean library-esque space. And I had some of the architecture in my head immediately, like, before I knew what any of the story of it was. I I knew that sort of, like, central space that you got to, like, off an elevator. And, like, I knew there were the the hallways that, like, there were books as far as the eye could see. And they sort of turned off into directions and maybe a cat walked by and, and... And I didn't know what the story behind it was. And so I started writing around it and writing different people who might live there or visit there. And that's like how I developed it. And Zachary came about because I needed that person to be that Alice for the Wonderlands and that that sort of um, vehicle character for the reader to experience the space through. And at first I thought, It was a place that he had found as a child and had actually visited and then sort of written off as a a dream or an imagining. And then the more I worked on it and and then revisited as an adult, and the more I worked on it, the more I thought I liked it better if he had had the chance to go to this magical space and had had chance to open this magic door and visit this space and he didn't do it. Because it made me wonder like, what if you didn't chase the rabbit down the rabbit hole? Do right. you think about the rabbit years oh, later? Do you wonder if that was a more significant moment than it ended up being? And that's sort of where the the drive for the Zachary story as and that it is, works so from. well.
2: You, I, I came across a quote that I loved. You said, "I'm either blessed or cursed by having a lot of imaginary architecture that lives in my brain." <laughs> I love that.
1: quote. It's true. Well, I have. So these you spaces. think in terms of places? And I am very visual. My background's in in studio art and theater um before I was really started writing. And I um I always have a space and I always think about every aspect of that physical space. I, I know how it's lit. I studied lighting design in college. So I always think about how a space is lit because lighting can change so much of a mood. Like um, If you have a, the same room lit by a candlelight and then um, the same space exactly lit by fluorescent overheads, it's completely a completely different. different experience. And I think it can be very evocative in describing it for writing. But I do, I start with these spaces and I have to find the stories within them. And they're always very elaborate spaces. They're never simple. They're, they're um they tend to have a lot of layers to them. I've heard sometimes people talk about the writing process as um, you're either a gardener or an architect. (laughs) Um, You're kind of like shaping things that are growing or you're planning every little bit. And I don't think I'm really either of those things. I think I'm more of an excavator where I'm just digging through all of these things in my brain trying to find what works. I I think
2: you also said that um, you don't begin writing with an outline, but that you prefer to use setting as a foundation. Mm-hmm. So you think of these places and that becomes a foundation. Yeah for and your it's work. it's
1: how everything connects to that space. Um, I start with that. The place in the, with the case of the night circus, it was what are the stories behind the circus and what who are who are the performers, who are the creators, and and that's where the story started developing, and it was very similar with this one,
2: right? And you, I think you studied at Smith College, yes, was I did. it? Yes. Yeah, and you studied theater and. Art, correct. But it wasn't. Were you an actress as well?
1: I did a little bit of everything. I I did some acting. I directed. um, I did a intensive Shakespeare class um, where I spent half the semester playing Touchstone (laughs) from As You Like It, and half of it playing Hamlet. (laughs) So I got I got a lot of acting experience in in that one semester. Um, But I did um, for my senior project. um, I. Adapted and directed *Alice in Wonderland* and *Through the Looking Glass*. Oh,
2: perfect! With an ensemble
1: class. Perfect, and it perfect. was all—it um, was uh, probably early inklings of the aesthetic of the night circus because it was all black and white except for once we got into the the chess pieces and in right. *Through the Looking Glass*, we had some red in there as well.
2: And, but you were you were really drawn by set design and lighting. Yeah,
1: and all I, that. I've always been very visual, and I like that sort of. Um, evocative immersive kind of where do you think that comes it. from I'm not sure I've always been a um like I like art and it, it was I've never been like a math person <laughs> like I've always <clears throat>
2: but sometimes that goes hand in hand
1: it's true um I th- I think I like story and I like um I would be like watching my cartoons and doing like and playing with my toys and having like all that I like Imagination stories. I used mm-hmm. to, um, there was a book when I was very little, um, not very, very little, when I was um, in the like early chapter book kind of reading. And there's a book by Zilfa Keatley Snyder called The Egypt Game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's um, a bunch of um, city kids who get obsessed with Egyptian mythology and build Egyptian temples in the lot behind their buildings. And it both sparked my initial fascination with. Egypt and, and mythology, but also I would go and do the same thing in the woods behind my house. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Marshall, Massachusetts, which is on the south shore, just south of Boston.
2: So, is it kind of more rural than yes. Boston
1: is? I I lived. It's a it's a suburb, <sighs> but I lived in um the um I lived at the in a uh, the last house of the on a dead end street, and then it's all woods as far as you can see. And I know I'm not allergic to poison ivy because apparently I would run around these Lots woods constantly, ivy. and they were covered in poison ivy,
2: which Which brings me to the fact that, you know, it's become almost legendary now that to write this, you sort of had to disconnect for a while. Yes. Right? And so you went to a more rural area.
1: Yeah, I did. I lived in, um, right after the Night Circus came out, I moved to Manhattan and lived there for about four years. And I went from living in midtown Manhattan to living in the Berkshires out in western Massachusetts I've now lived on. (laughs) opposite ends of the state. Um, and so I'm on six and a half acres. That's mostly woods. And when we were looking- Are you still there? Yes. Oh, oh we're on six and a half wooded acres. And when I went to um, buy the house, um, my accountants asked me if this was gonna be my forever home. And I thought, this is the house I want to haunt. <laughs> I, I love it. It's It immediately felt like exactly what we were looking for. And, um, but it was very different. Than Manhattan, and it was the summer of 2016. Um, And for two years, we did not have cable or internet. What was that like? It was a very strange time to not have cable or internet. It it was the election time. It it made everything a little more surreal. Yeah. But in and on a personal level, I think it was helpful for me because I did really literally get to shut myself away with just me and the book. And I think it's part of the reason (laughs) that the book is done because I did get to really like close off all those, those um, internet voices and all those. Was
2: there any big news story that you missed?
1: There probably (laughs) were. And I just don't know. I I would try to keep in. I I didn't miss the election obviously (laughs) um, because people texted me, but um, I, I, I'm sure there were things that happened, and it it just, it, I mean, it almost sounds like I had to tune out a little bit, but part of it was um, involuntary, and, and part of it was by choice.
2: Well, the other thing when we when we when we go to the Starless Sea, there's clearly your love for art and design and the architecture of everything you build, but you clearly have a love for books and mm-hmm. literature and. and being a bibliophile, and in fact, Publishers Weekly um, writes of the Starless Sea, this love letter to bibliophiles is dreamlike and uncanny, grounded in deeply felt emotion and absolutely thrilling. And for someone like me who sells books and is surrounded by them, you know, our, we have a quote by Borges that we use. And, um, he was blind and somebody asked him, Borges, you have this incredible library and you're blind. Why? And he goes, I cannot sleep unless I'm surrounded Mm. by books. And I think those of us who feel that felt that so strongly in the starless sea, everywhere you turn, there's a reference to another book. So with that said, um, uh, and you've included so many titles of books in the starless sea, um, how did you choose?
1: <laughs> um, a lot of them are just personal favorites. Um, a lot of them were things I thought were appropriate for the type of story it is. Like there's the obvious Alice in Wonderland references. There are Narnia references. There, I, I wanted to to have an awareness of that. It was um, something I thought about um, consciously. Was I remember having a conversation with Lev Grossman about how if Harry Potter were real he would have been in that cupboard under the stairs reading Chronicles of Narnia and that so many fantasies, especially like real world fantasies don't include an awareness of those books. So I wanted to have Zachary in particular and the world that he is in, which is our world. These are books he would read. Like like these are references he would have. Um, So there was that. Um, and, and that was done, done on a, purpose. And you've done a
2: service to your mm. readers as well, turning them on to books that they might yes. like. Yes.
1: And too. then I get to mention like favorites like Sarah Waters yes, or, exactly. or The Secret History. Well, I know that
2: one, somewhere I read that you're a big fan of Alan Lightman's books too. Yes, Einstein's that, Dreams one is one of my all time favorites. That is one of my all time favorites.
1: I think so. that um, that book actually had a large impact on my writing style as far as how I format things because um, it's in those little dreamlike vignettes. And that's very much. How yeah, my exactly. style has evolved into the sort of sort short, isolated chapter feel.
2: Yeah, no, and and I think that's very effective actually because you're left with a sense. There's another book that that when I was reading it, It's so different in terms of subject matter. But the whole notion of doors and traveling Mm -hmm. through doors and choosing doors. I don't know if you ever read a book by um, Moshe Hamin. you know, Exit West.
1: Oh, I know the book, but I haven't read it. Yeah,
2: it's a very interesting book about where it's about immigration, Mm -hmm. but they choose doors to go to. So you're not there for the journey, but you're there where they end up which mm. is really very cool, actually. So you're not there for the difficult journey they took, but you're there for all the difficulties they face once they've gotten to where they're going. Mm. And then there are these hidden doors all over the place. But it's also done in these dreamlike kinds of uh, vignettes. So I find that I find that fantastic. Um, talk about some of the books um, that have been integral in your life, um, mm. not only as a writer, but also as a reader.
1: Uh, Oh, there's so many. Um, I have a bunch of go-tos on that one. I remember um, when I was in college at Smith, um, I I volunteered to help clean out the basement where like former students had just left odd cardboard boxes full of things that they didn't take with them. So they'd been there long enough that were just free reign to, to clean out and clear out and donate. And in one of those boxes, I found a very beat up Paperback of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. It had a dollar bill from 1934 stuck oh, okay, in it as a bookmark. Fantastic. Don't know why, um, cool. but of course I just sat down and read it, and it was one of the first experiences I had reading um, adult literature that was that sort of fun and had that like sort of sense of like whimsy, and kind of opened my mind as to what like that sort of book can be. And so it was a very formative. A reading experience for me. Um, the other one I had in college was um, I read Alias Grace by Margaret Atwood. Um, and I was assigned it for um, I took, I think it was a, a modern women writers course. And I read it and I was because I was a theater major, I was always in rehearsal, so I do end up reading very late at night. And I, so I read it curled up in my window and from my dorm over the, the mountains in Western Massachusetts, I could see the um, closed down Northampton State Mental Hospital. I, it's like kind of ominously <laughs> sitting while I was reading this book. And I think it added a lot to the reading experience. And I also know that... Um, that that book had a particular effect on um, my writing style because um, my professor for that class had us read the opening pages of it out loud, Mm. one sentence per person going around the room. The opening line of Alias Grace is, out of the gravel there are peonies growing, and I just remember that, and this is 20 years ago (laughs) from that class, and the rhythm of those sentences and the way it sounded going around the room and really got a sense of the, the way the word sounded and the musicality of it. And I think it's probably why I tend to write in present tense.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, because that
1: whole sequence is in present tense. Do you, do
2: you also find yourself reading aloud yes. what you've written? And it in has order to have to the right cadence?
1: rhythm to it. I will add words or take out words or try to find something with more or, or fewer syllables just to get it to sound the, the way I want it to sound. Of
2: it all. No, that makes also perfect sense. Um does the fact that your mom, if if I mm-hmm. got it correct, was she was a she was a librarian? Yes, right?
1: she's now retired. She was um she was a kindergarten teacher before I was born, and then um when my sister and I were old enough, she went back to um, being a elementary school librarian, and she was a bunch of different libraries and Over was handing you books yes.
2: periodically. I think
1: I think she is the reason that I'm now a little compulsive about owning my books <laughs> because I did have to go to the library and she would a lot take them and back. It, yes, what? I didn't I don't really like having to give them back. I'm very I get a little precious about the book as an object like I'm not an e-reader person. I am I'm, I'm a paper book person. I want to hold it in my hands. I like the way it feels. I forget I where I would it.
2: expect nothing less <laughs> after reading
1: this. I'm I'm, I'm tactile too, so I like the feel of it. And I read, I forget where I heard it now, but I, um, and I wouldn't have been able to articulate it like this myself, but I read someone's describe liking the feel of the weight of a book moving from one hand to the mm. other as you get closer to the end and it gets lighter on like.
2: I've never thought about that, yes, but it's actually. It's true. There's a, but, like, sense, there's of, a sense of victory yes. involved, and, and A sense of accomplishment. It
1: feels like the way you move through like a physical mo- motion right. through the shape of the story.
2: Oh, that's, that's well put. You know, one of the things that I'm wondering how you feel is that, and I think you've probably seen it in your audiences as well. And it may be because of the eight years, it may be because of other things too. But um, your book is often viewed as a crossover book. Mm-hmm. In other words, it, it appeals to teenagers as well as it does to adults. And uh, I think you know people who wrote, who read Night Circus as a 17 year old, they're now 20, 25. Mm. Oh, let's I talked,
1: I saw, I met someone at an event um, earlier this year that um, she said she'd read The Night Circus when she was 14, and she was wow. getting her MFA in writing. <laughs> it's like, Isn't oh, it wonderful? has been that long, and it, and that's what's one of the reasons. That
2: is a she great was doing thing. That and it's great, and, but so so that's something that you that you celebrate to a large extent. Oh
1: yes, I I mean I, I always get into this thing where I will sometimes clarify that it is not. Technical technically YA like both right. of them are books that were published as adult books but I love having that crossover I like the American Library Association has that award it's called the Alex Award that they give Which you won? Yes um for um and um it's given for wow. books Written for adults with appeal for teen readers. And I still remember years before I was writing seriously um, and I was sort of toying with what I wanted to write and the sort of books that I wanted to write. I read um, John Connolly's Book of Lost Things. Yeah. And in the sort of about the book blurb on the back, it mentions that the it Alex had won the Alex of, right. Award. And I thought to myself, oh, that's the sort of thing I would want to write. And then, of course, years later, I got one. Well, for the, the other thing I, I love
2: too as a bookseller is that it doesn't fall into a particular silo. I think, mm-hmm. you know, we put it in fiction the way it should be. It's not necessarily fantasy or not fantasy.
1: It's a little hard to categorize. It's
2: hard to categorize. And it, and it, and it also means that, you don't need to think about writing any other way than the way you write. In other words, just to get out of a particular silo. Does that make any sense?
1: I think so. I, I I think I was a little bit fortunate in that when I started writing, I knew nothing about publishing. And I was just writing to tell a story and I was working on The Night Circus for years and um, only when I started to look into like, how does one publish? A novel and how does that whole process work? Did I find all these things that said um never write in second person and and don't write in present tense? (laughs) And it's like, oh, I already did all those things. What the heck? But they're there. I thought I I figured like I might as well give it a shot since I have it all here already. But I think that is one of the things I didn't I didn't think too much about um qualities of genre or how like that. Like, the the categorization would work for it. I was just trying to tell a story as best I could.
2: And you told it very, very well.
1: Thank you. It took a lot of rewriting.
2: I know that it did. A lot of people, I think what happens is a lot of people get, they feel daunted by the fact that they think that, books come out fully formed Mm -hmm. from writers. They don't realize that it takes the work that it I think
1: it's hard to imagine or picture the writing process as being messy. I had that sort of light bulb moment um, because I I paint as well, or I, I used to paint more than I do, but I was painting a lot when I was working on The Night Circus. And my painting process, involves literally throwing painted things because I like having that sort of almost Jackson Pollock splatter effect on things. And I, so I had a very messy workspace painting and I thought, why should I expect my writing process to be any different? But I do think as a reader, a finished book looks so pristine and so, so crisp and so clear. And I, and I think I had, I definitely know I had that um, impression that when you were a writer, maybe you 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 started the beginning and you wrote through and maybe you went back and changed like a comma here and there but the, you didn't like like that was that you didn't pull things apart and change things and
2: people don't realize it's really hard yeah in, you know, they just don't.
1: But I think with other artistic processes, you you can you can look at a painting and know that there it. was a, know that there's a sketch underneath it or layers of paint. You can go to the theater and know that that production went through rehearsals. Right. But with a book, it's harder to to picture the process behind it until you're doing it. I think. The
2: funniest thing that ever happened with us about that was that one day I, f- I forget the writer, but he had the greatest retort. There was a guy who sat up during the Q and A and said. I just want you to know I'm a brain, I'm a heart surgeon and I'm about to retire, and I'd love to write a novel. And I wonder if you could give me any suggestions. And the writer, without skipping a beat, said, What a coincidence. I'm about to retire as a writer and I want to be a heart surgeon. <laughs> Can you give me some ideas as to what to do? Knowing the intricacies of what someone like you have done. There's, there's nothing comparable to mm-hmm. it, really.
1: I think th- one of the hurdles for me was realizing that I could write parts that I wasn't going to use or that I was going to end up rewriting entirely and that that was still part of the process. It was, I think, particularly sometimes discouraging with working on The Starless Sea because it's like, I've done this once before. I felt like I should have a better idea of what I was doing. But no, I think it is just part of my process where I write much more than I'm ever going to use and I write different versions and and I write and rewrite and it's sort of like a long outline like esque process where i'm just writing more than i will who ever. who Who's your need. first
2: reader after you
1: uh usually my husband your husband um but sometimes i will have things that no one reads like i'll know almost immediately that and you'll turn it's it into your agent
2: myself. first or your editor
1: um first? my agent first usually uh-huh. um but there's there's a lot of of writing before it even gets to that of course process of course. and i because i don't like to hand things in when they're unreadable so i have to get it into some semblance of it sort of makes some kind of sense even if it's not right yet before i send it to someone to read
2: so i'm going to ask you two sort of art related things in a way with your art background and i you know in reading about you i know and maybe I have old news, but I know that you're working on the Phantom Wise tarot deck in some ways. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: I actually, I painted a tarot deck while I was working on the Night Circus, um, partially to help teach myself tarot a little better than I knew, and just also had to have um, sometimes when I would finish a painting, I wouldn't really know what I wanted to do next, and I figured that's at least 78 paintings that I knew which <laughs> I, what I was going to paint next. Um, there was a very limited edition done by a small press um, in um, Europe. This, so it did uh, come it, out. It was only the major arc and only the, the 22 majors, um, and there were only 100 <laughs> printed of it, so it's oh, very yeah, rare yeah. now. Um, but I would like to get the entire deck published at some point, um, it's just one of those things that it's never gotten to the top of the to-do list. Yeah, of course. Because it was done right before the Night Circus, and then of course I got very busy. (laughs) After the Night Circus came out, um, but and now all of a sudden everyone has a tarot deck. Right. Like I had mine before. There were so many, and I actually love that there's so many. I kind yes. of I collect a little bit. I, I haven't counted how many decks I have, but okay. now that there's so many, and there's I like them as an art form because I like archetypes, but I also like seeing the way lots of different artists will interpret and um, portray the same sort of symbols. Well, or characters. I love the chances
2: that you take because on your website. I loved reading the Flax Golden Tales mm. as well, which which was your collaboration with Carrie Farrell mm-hmm. and it's beautiful, and Thank the little you. stories that you wrote I wrote fantastic.
1: they were ten sentence short stories. i um I started them partially because I wanted my website to look like I was a writer before I had a book out. And I thought, how could I do this? And I was like, maybe if I write like little tiny things. And they were partially inspired by um, Chris Van Allsberg's um, The Mysteries of Harry um, which are like, beautiful illustrations with single sentence stories right. that go with them. Um, and And I did them for five years. I think I only missed one week. In those oh, five no, years, I didn't that, um, there are about two hundred and sixty something of cool. them total. But after five years, it was a couple of years after the Night Circus came out. I decided it was, it Come. was probably enough. <laughs> um, but I thought I think they were really good for me. They were almost like, um, especially when I was busy with um, with book tour things, and they were like doing little bits of writing yoga, uh, keeping. And I recommend my it, brain it just, going. It said
2: Aaron dot, dot com. Com. I see. So make sure you go there and look at that. And what do you now that you have a little bit of downtime what are you reading do you have any recommendations Ooh, I'm of reading, anything
1: My tour reading has been I had never read Robin Hobb's Farseer trilogy so I've, I've gotten through The Assassin's Apprentice and now I'm reading um is it Royal Assassin is the second one um and they're fantastic I love a big epic fantasy like a right. big sprawling sink into like feels like it feels like going somewhere else but it's becoming familiar to me. So it's like that perfect thing to, to go into on an airplane during all these book tour shenanigans. Is that,
2: I know that video games had a lot to do with this mm-hmm. too. Does that, does that tie into your interest in video games as well where I you can lose yourself? So. I
1: do like that. It and you feels, like the more
2: medieval sort of video games? I
1: don't like shooting things. Right. I'll do bow and arrow, but anything that has too many guns, I kind of like <laughs> it, it's too much noise for me. Um, but I do like those. Um, I like open worlds, um, role playing video games that you can kind of explore like I play a lot of Skyrim especially because I have it for my Nintendo Switch which comes with me on book tour as well so if I'm too tired to read I can just wander around but it's open world and you can literally just like walk through this entire map and, and you they do allow you to like do like a quick like you can click a button and just travel like across oh, the map cool. but I'll just wander and walk and and it, it again if it, because I've played it a couple times it feels familiar. Cool that's great i guess people I think the learning curve is is higher than it is i feel like that like i need to make my list there's a mention in, in this where about a a, a a list of gateway games for new oh, gamers and, and i should make one up I'll that's a really good maybe idea. when i'm home from tour i will send write one a, up <laughs> send me and i'll put it on the website i would like that
2: um, one of the things that we do, if you would like, and I know that I'm springing on you, but is there a short section you might want to read from from Ooh. The Starless Sea? Do you scene? have
1: a suggestion?
2: Um, and how short? It could be really short. So I think even the beginning would sure. be a good place to start.
1: There is a pirate in the basement. The pirate is a metaphor, but also still a person. The basement could rightly be considered a dungeon. The pirate was placed here for numerous acts of a piratey nature considered criminal enough for punishment by those non-pirates who decide such things. Someone said to throw away the key, but the key rests on a tarnished ring on a hook that hangs on the wall nearby, close enough to see from behind the bars, freedom kept in sight but out of reach, left as a reminder to the prisoner. No one remembers that now on the key side of the bars, the careful psychological design forgotten, distilled into habit and convenience. The pirate realizes this, but withholds comment. The guard sits in a chair by the door and reads crime serials on faded paper, wishing he were an idealized fictional version of himself, wondering if the difference between pirates and thieves is a matter of boats and hats. After a time, he is replaced by another guard, The pirate cannot discern the precise schedule, as the basement dungeon has no clocks to mark the time, and the sounds of the waves on the shore beyond the stone walls muffles the morning chimes, the evening merriment. This guard is shorter and does not read. He wishes to be no one but himself. He lacks the imagination to conjure alter egos, even the imagination to empathize with the man behind the bars, the only other soul in the room beyond the mice. He pays elaborate amounts of attention to his shoes when he is not asleep. He is usually asleep. Oh, that's
2: wonderful. Those of you who have not read The Starless Sea yet, you're in for a gigantic treat. And I'd like to thank Aaron Morgenstern for being on The Literary Life. Thanks so
0: much, Aaron.
1: Thank you so much for having me.